0: one last time please open your bibles to psalm 119 at least the last for now as we can complete our study the longest chapter of the bible please open to psalm 119 we'll be looking at the last stanza the last eight verses verses 169 to 176 psalm 119 Verses 169 to 176. So I'd like to begin by reading our text, having a word of prayer, and then diving in. <clears throat> Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me. According to your word My lips will pour forth praise if you teach me your statutes My tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right Let your hand be ready to help me For I've chosen your precepts I long for your salvation. O Lord and your law is my delight Let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant for I do not forget your commandments. Lord God, as we consider these many prayer requests, these petitions, I pray that you would give us confidence to approach your throne of grace with these same pleas that our priorities, that our concerns, that our desires would align with your word, that we would know the freedom and the privilege we have to draw near and call you Father and ask of you what is on our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I suggested to you that these last two stanzas of Psalm 119 really serve to sum up and unify its themes. Last week, we saw a stanza dedicated primarily to the excellency, the greatness, the glory, the satisfaction of the word. The word is greater in creating fear and reverence than even enemies. The word is more to be desired. The word is more satisfying. The word is great that God has given to us. There is no petitions in last week week's stanza this week is dominated by them dominated by them And so here the other theme the the servant of god the child of god is supremely satisfied with delighted in god's word and yet that doesn't nullify the concerns and the petitions and prayers and prayers that we've seen again and again and again throughout the psalm they show up here it's a fitting conclusion um, if you look, verse 169, let, verse 170, let, verse 173, let, verse 175, let, and again, let, the, this is just spitfire petitions and prayers. And so taken together, I think these last two stanzas really serve a, a good job of summarizing the major themes in the book. I suggest we can look at this stanza in five points. First, please submitted. Please, not like please, may I, but a plea, plural, please submitted, verses one sixty nine to one seventy. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you, deliver me according to your word. Now this verse strongly connects this stanza with the one that came before. It's part of the reason why I think they're they're helpful to look at as a unit. Notice the last verse of our last stanza, 168. I keep your precepts and testimonies. Why? For all my ways are before you. What's the request here in 169 and 170? That something else might come before the Lord. That that unifying thought. Our God who is not far removed but close and at hand in front of whose life we live. Living life in front of the face of God, well, the psalmist wants something else to come before the Lord God. That's, that's the unifying thought. You'll also notice that 169 and 170 are nearly word for word in their, in their formation. Let my cry, let my plea, come before you, come before you. Then 169 has God's covenant name, O Lord. Then the petition itself, give me understanding or deliver me according to your word, according to your word. These are two tightly paralleled thoughts. So let's consider in three points what is going on here, what these prayers represent. First, please for God's presence. God's presence. He is aware that in one sense, he lives before God. God is intimately aware of every thought, every action, every deed. But he also wants now God's attention to be drawn to his prayers. Now, of course, there's one sense in which God is omniscient. God knows all. God is aware of the prayers of the wicked. But when he's asking here, God, let my cry come before you, the the concept is before you in a way that you are attentive to, before you in a way that you are willing to hear. You think back to the story of the book of Esther. Remember how Esther couldn't appear before the king? It was a sentence of death unless he stuck out his scepter at her. He's asking something like that Lord, I have a request. Would you hear it? Would you consider it? Would you give it your attention? And even as he loves the Lord, even as he lives his life in front of the Lord, he comes as a supplicant. Lord, please pay heed. Please let my cry come before you. Let my plea come before you. Give attention to what I'm praying for. Give attention to what I'm asking. Note the humility. These aren't demands. These are petitions and requests. He prays for God's presence that is Prayers would come before God's throne in an acceptable way. I don't know if we give much thought to that often. We we assume if we pray at all, God's kind of lucky that we're praying. Here the psalmist is concerned. May may my petitions make it before your throne of grace, O God, and may you give attention to them. May you look at them and hear them, please. He's coming humbly. Next, what he's actually praying for is God's provision. God's provision. You see the two requests side by side. The first is for insight, insight, give me understanding. And the second for intervention, deliver me. Now again and again in Psalm 119, these are the two major themes. He's in trouble and he recognizes in his trouble he needs at least two things. I need more understanding of your word. I need more strengthening from your word. I need more instruction from your word. And I need help and deliverance. And we are often eager to pray for the help and the deliverance. Lord, get me out of this trouble. Remove this trouble. Protect me from the danger. And that's fine, as well as it's accompanied by the other parallel theme, that while the trouble remains, and I think here's the logic. While his danger remains, while his adversaries are active, while the threat looms high, I need more, greater understanding and strengthening of your word if I'm to survive and act rightly. In the trial, what I need is more of your word. So you can think of the first petition, give me understanding as strengthening and equipping in the trial. And then a second, deliver me. Literally remove me out of, pull me out of. And that's fine to pray as well. Lord, I would like to be done with this trial. But if by your will it continues, then I'm definitely going to need more understanding, more insight, more strengthening from your word. So he wants his prayer to come before God's presence. He's requesting God's provision. And these two prayers, give me understanding, teach me, they're riddled through the psalm. You can see all the references I have there on the side. Teach me, give me understanding, teach me. Again and again in Psalm 119. These are dominant themes in this psalm which suggests these should be dominant themes in our prayer life. I'm guessing most of us have little problem with the help, help, and that's good. There's nothing wrong there. It's bringing up to equal the other. Teach, teach, instruct, strengthen, reveal your word to me. That probably, at least in my life, is the short spoke. But we see these go hand in glove again and again in this song, and it's instructive for us. God's presence, God's provision. And he argues, he makes the petition according to a standard, and it's God's promise, according to your word. And again, we, we, we should learn how to pray from the Psalms. The psalmists reason with God. The psalmists make arguments in a sense. You can think of these two prayers. Lord, please give attention to my may my prayer come before in an acceptable way, your throne, your face. Lord, give me understanding. Lord, deliver me in accordance with your word, which is a way of saying, as you promised, as you said you would. Which again means his prayers are instructed and formed by the word of God. Lord God, it's as if the psalmist is saying, you have promised in your word things like, oh, say Psalm 25, 8, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. Lord, you say you instruct sinners, instruct me. Psalm thirty-seven, thirty-four seven, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fears them and delivers them. Lord, I fear you deliver me. Psalm thirty-four, seventeen, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them. Lord, I'm crying, hear and deliver me. He's, you notice how he's praying. He's praying God's word back to God. Here's what you said, Lord. I believe it. Please fulfill it. This, this is how to offer your petitions to God. Not demands, humbly, with supplication. Not losing sight of both of our needs. God may allow the trial to continue, in which case, what I need is strengthening from his word. God may remove me. That's what I'd prefer. And you can let the Lord know your preference, but pray along both lines for insight and for intervention, God's presence, God's provision, God's promise. So those are the first two verses, the please submitted. Then point two, we get to praise anticipated. Now you'll notice the ESV, if you have it, departs from the New American Standard and the NIV. And in this instance, it's... it's, it's Debatable both are valid translations. I tend to think the NIV and the New American Standard get it right the NIV and the New American Standard continue with petitions The NASB says let my lips Let my tongue the NIV may my lips may, they're, they're still requests and given the dominance of requests in this stanza and, and You could interpret the verb either way. I, I tend to think they're correct But either way, he's anticipating this. He's thinking about it. Whether you take it as he's planning to do it himself or he's asking the Lord to do it, it's something he wants to do. Again, I think given the tenor of the whole section, the petition fits better. But what does he want? He, He wants to praise God. Again, getting out of his trouble is not his greatest desire. Getting out of trouble, persevering through trouble, is a means to a greater end. Usually for us, it's our great end. Remove the difficulty, why? I don't enjoy difficulty, I want peace. That's as good as far as it goes. The psalmist would say, I think, Lord strengthen me with your word, deliver me from this trouble, why? So that I can praise you with a full and joyous heart. My lips will pour forth praise for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right. So your first blank here is his desire whether you take it as a request to tend to or simply his plan, either way, it's something he wants, he desires, he yearns to, and he wants his lips to pour forth praise, he wants his tongue to sing. And again, we get back to a common theme in Scripture, which is this. God is happy to give grace and to deliver and to save his people. But the understanding is we, in turn, praise him. We, we get the grace, he gets the glory. And, and so another c- concept to think through in our prayer life is, as we're asking God for help, how much praise have we given him, do we intend to give him, for the help he's given us already? We, we need to understand that God's goal in life is to glorify himself by showing his grace and kindness to his children. He intends to give glory to himself. He intends for his glory to cover the earth as the water covers the sea. And one of the ways he does that is through his people praising him. And it should be a delight, not a duty. He's not saying, Lord, if you'll help me out, I guess guess I can sing a song or two. My lips will pour forth praise. Or Lord, let my lips pour forth your praise. That's his desire. But he gives us a reason for his desire. Why why is the psalmist eager to sing and praise God? Well, first, that's his foundation, point B, his foundation. First is his confidence. He's just asked the Lord to give him understanding in verse 169. What's his reason for praise in 171? For you teach me your statutes. Throughout this whole psalm, he's been asking for instruction and receiving it. He still wants more. Which means our instruction from the Lord is not a one-time static event. It's ongoing. I think you could view the Christian life as God, through His Spirit, showing you something in His Word. Whether it's some encouragement, some exhortation, some conviction, some promise to believe. And then we respond to that in faith. We take that on and it affects how we live. And then God shows us something else. And over and over, by degree to degree to degree, we progress from one degree of glory to another. So even as the psalmist is saying, Lord, I'm going to need more understanding, he is praising God precisely because God teaches him. The the prayer that he's asking, in other words, he is confident he will receive. Give me understanding and accord your word. My lips will pour forth your praise, for you teach me your statutes. It's his confidence. These are prayers he knows God delights to answer. His confidence, and next we see his delight for all your commandments are right. All your commandments are right. He wants to praise God. And and, and think of this, we get so used to this. We, We live in a world where if God did not choose to reveal himself to us, we could know nothing about him. I mean, you gotta pause and just understand that. If God wanted to hide himself, we could know nothing about him. Which is one of the reasons why, when we start talking about who God is, and we say, I like to think of God this way, or God, I imagine, this way, or um, why would God do, it might be a helpful piece of autobiography we're telling, but we're advancing nowhere in learning who God is. It matters not who I want to think of God as. What matters is, has God revealed himself? And if he has revealed himself, how has he revealed himself? And so we have God's revelation of himself. First, we have it in the creation around us, for all to see. Psalm 19 celebrates this glory. Romans 1 celebrates this. And God has revealed something of who he is in his conscience, in our hearts. And all men have that. But we, of all people, have the books of God's word. We have such riches of his self-revelation and contrary to some modern thought that has been corrupted. There's the thoughts of man. I hope you've seen in Psalm 119 the the insistence God's word is pure. God's word is good. The sum of your word is truth, verse 160. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Don't, Don't stop being amazed by that. We have pure truth We have the mind of God revealed to us in his word. And you get, I think you get the impression from Psalm 119. The Psalmist has never stopped being floored by this, never stopped being excited and flabbergasted by it. The danger can be that familiarity breeds content. I mean, you're aware that prior to the printing press, very, very few of God's people had their own copy of God's word. Um, this is one of the reasons Carol Hardy's class is about writing it down. It comes out of Deuteronomy, where the king of Israel was to have his own handwritten copy of the law approved by the priests and scribes. And we have so many of them. I got a shelf in my office full of Bibles. I have so much more access to God's word, but strangely, because of that, precisely, there's a temptation to be dull, bored. Familiarity breeds contempt. And we see the model here. That that that's to never be the case i want to praise you it gives two reasons my confidence you will in fact teach me and the things you will teach me are true they are righteous they are good your commandments are good we tend to resent commandments oh well, you want to tell me to do something huh okay what is it here i want to praise you because your commandments are right your commandments are good what you require of me is right and so praise is anticipated. This pleas are submitted, then praise is anticipated. Point three, now we get to protection requested. Protection requested. Let's read verses 70, 173 to 175. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I've chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord and your law is my delight let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me now I've organized this around the three lets verse 73 let your hand be ready to help me As a crust 175 let my soul live and praise you too and let your rules help me And then with the purpose, so the the way to think about this is his need of help and his reasons for help. I'm taking these three verses and organizing the petitions and the reasons for the petitions, even as the text itself goes petition, reason, petition, reason. So what what are his three requests? First, his need of help from God himself, from God himself. Let your hand be ready to help me. Uh, And we see the fluidity with which the psalmist goes from talking to God to his word to God to his word He's flabbergasted in awe of God's word and he also knows he needs God's help God himself And again, this is the amazing reality because 168 all our ways are before him because we live our lives in front of him because he's not far removed as a clockmaker We have a God who can help We have a God who can intervene God who can act and does act. And so we can make bold requests like, Lord, let your hand be ready to help me. But get ready, Lord. I think I'm going to need some help here pretty soon. And would you move quickly? Would you uphold me? So help from God himself. Notice for the reason, though. For God's own glory. For God's own glory. Let my soul live and praise you. Lord, would you be ready to help me? Lord, would you give me life so that I can praise you? In other words, the psalmist's reason for living is praise. And the implied motive is God is concerned with, desires, and is pleased by his praise. So he wants help from God himself for God's glory and also from God's word. Let your rules help me. I'm going to need help from God himself, and I'm going to need help from his word. It's not either or. And we've already seen up in the first two verses that as he's in danger and as he's in trial, he wants deliverance, but he also knows he needs strengthening. And how many times in Psalm 119 have we seen, deliver me, strengthen me, give me life according to your word. The ordinary means of God's grace is his word. And God can use other means, but his weapon of choice if you will is his word how does god help his children most ordinarily most normally his word and so the psalmist wants help directly from god's hand he wants his activity and he's not separating that from his word he also let your rules help me which is also again back to that concern of in the trial in the difficulty Because what help would God's rules give him? They would tell him how to act, how to walk, how to keep his way pure, how to respond to evil. They'd give him promises that he would not become discouraged. They would give him commands that he might keep, warnings that he might hear. And so so he's praying for help from God himself, for God's glory, and from God's word. And he gives three reasons why the Lord might consider to help him. First, for I've chosen your precepts. And that's his faith. His faith. We often hear about making a choice for the Lord. And I think that's sort of the idea here. The psalmist, and we've seen this, has considered the prosperity of the wicked. He's considered the ease of the wicked. He's considered alternate forms of wisdom and protection. And he says, no, no, I've chosen your word. I've chosen your precepts. I've cast my lot entirely with them. That's faith. That's trusting. That's the idea. I'm, I'm betting it all on God's word. It's all riding there. I'm not hedging my bets. I've chosen your precepts. And precisely for that reasons, we saw last stanza, princes persecute me without cause. There's a great cost at choosing God's precepts. And so he reminds the Lord of his faith. I have chosen your precepts. So Lord, would you not help me? You yourself, for your glory, by the means of your word next his hope his hope i long for your salvation and again we've seen and we're seeing that as his danger continues he doesn't begin to consider other avenues of escape other saviors other help it's the lord's deliverance where it's nothing it's God's salvation or it's nothing. Look back at 166. Again, linking these two stanzas together. I hope for your salvation, O Lord. Here I long for your salvation, O Lord. Which suggests to some degree it, it's taken a while to come. And he's going nowhere. He's, he's sitting expectantly. Lord, help me. Why? I long for your salvation. Point three, notice his love. His love. And your law is my delight what does this suggest what suggests that God helps is inclined to help is pleased by is compassionate to those who have faith in him and his word who hope in his salvation and who love him and his word that's the idea Who, who does God help who can boldly call upon God for help those who have faith in his words and what he has said, his promises, in those who are longing and hoping for his salvation, and for those who love his law. That's, that's who God looks on with favor. So the psalmist said, that's me. It's me, Lord. I've chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, and your law is my delight. There's no better place to stand than be able to confess those things. The temptation for us can be things like, well, I, I like your precepts, and I also like some of what the world has to offer. I long for your salvation, but I've also, uh, I've also taken some precautionary measures. And your law is my delight, and 33 other things. Oh, this, this is an undivided heart, chosen God's precepts at great cost to himself, Not looking to the left or the right, but waiting on God's salvation and delighting in God's law. And for those reasons, he says, Lord, help me. Help me. Yourself, that I might praise you by means of your word. Which brings us finally to the last verse. Pursuit needed. Pursuit needed. And I'm going to take a little time here because this is an odd verse. It's the longest verse in the psalm. And we bring a new motif up here, a new theme, almost seemingly out of nowhere. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. There's a number of oddities here. The first is, has not the psalmist been confessing throughout the psalm how he's been faithful? Look back at verse 110. 110. Verse 110. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not step away from your precepts. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. I do make sense of that. And I would offer you in this verse some hope and comfort as you read this psalm that this, this is not a psalm written for super saints only, super Christians. You can read some of the declarations of the psalmist, and I've been intimidated. How do I pray that? Um, And this verse makes it clear that even as this man is striving to pursue obedience, even as he's trusting God's word, he's also a straying person. It also reminds us and makes clear that even with the greatest desire, love, loyalty, faith, and hope, no one can perfectly keep God's word. Let me me read a quote to you from a commentator named Sol. The final verse forms a touching conclusion to the poem. The verse is longer than any of the preceding ones in this psalm, yet in it, the psalmist makes himself small. The psalmist states that he has wandered off like a lost sheep and prays for God to seek him since he has not forgotten God's commandments, but... If he's not forgotten God's commandments, how is it that he's wandered off like a lost sheep? The answer lies in the dilemma posed at the very beginning of the psalm. Back in verse 9, the psalmist's ways are not yet in line with the way of the Torah. Much learning remains even for the faithful. And then... um, Zemek goes on to say, so then the biblical prescription continues. The child of God sees himself as an isolated and sorely imperiled sheep. Being confronted with this accurate self-portrait, he comes face to face with his own vulnerability. This phenomenon needs to occur in progressive stages wherein his own sin becomes more exceedingly sinful. So let me try to summarize what's being said there, then we can go through this verse. Simultaneously in the life of the believer, two things should be true. One, you should be growing in your faith. You should be growing in your confidence. You should be growing in your skill at battling sin. You should be growing in holiness. You should be looking a little more like Jesus today than you did three months ago. That's true. And you and I will never stop being wandering sheep who need God to seek out and find. Prone to wander, Lord, I know it. Prone to leave the God I love. And we never stop needing a shepherd to come after us. We never stop needing care. We we never shepherd ourselves ultimately and finally. Both remain true. It shows the humility and the dependence that even as the psalmist has made bold and great claims, he never grows beyond being a stupid sheep who can wander off easily. And that's true of you and I as well. It's interesting, if, if I'm right in thinking that this psalm is written during the Babylonian captivity, possibly even by Daniel himself, then this verse is also referencing Isaiah 53, Certainly, there's some intertextuality. Whether Isaiah 53 or this verse was written first, it's hard to make clear, but we all know this verse. Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What the psalmist confesses here in 176 is true of every last one of us and doesn't stop being true of us let's consider it three points first the psalmist's condition his current condition i've gone astray like a lost sheep Um, and, and that's that's the tension clearly here is someone who loves god's word who's delighting in it, who's hoping in it, who's praying according to it. And clearly, he also, just as clearly, doesn't imagine he's come to some perfect obedience, attained some level of perfection. He's still a lost sheep. In other words, to bring in a New Testament example, he never stops praying like the tax collector in Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know this one, Luke 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, could not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. We should never grow beyond that type of humility. That's one of the reasons I put not in me this morning. Even twenty years into my Christian faith, no good thing resides in me. It wasn't put there by God. Twenty years into my Christian walk, I'm still prone to wander. I still need a shepherd. I can still act like a dumb sheep at times. And I find it great, very encouraging that this psalm is capped by this confession and admission. Lest we think this is only a psalm for super sanctified people. If, if you're a dumb lost sheep, this is a psalm for you too. Which also then means the heights, the glories, the joys, the longings, the prayers are for you as well. It bridges them. So his condition, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. He, he knows what solution he wants. His solution, seek your servant. Seek your servant. To turn, if you will, to one of my favorite passages, Ezekiel 34. And this is a rich biblical theme. And in this final verse of Psalm 119, it makes connections. I think a connection to Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant we know is the Lord Jesus Christ. But God pictured as a shepherd seeking lost sheep is not simply a New Testament metaphor. It's in one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, Ezekiel 34. we well, got time. We're good. Ezekiel 34 begins with the Lord rebuking the false shepherds. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Even to the shepherds of Israel, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Now here's what they should have been doing. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. And they wandered all over the mountains. And on every high hill, my sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to seek or search for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd, because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am a against the shepherds you get the idea of how much passion and love god has for his flock and how provoked and angry he is at shepherds who don't seek his flock look at his solution in verse 11 i love this, this is the heart of our god thus says the lord god behold i i myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness, and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, On the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong, I will destroy. I'll feed them in justice. You get, you get an idea of how central this shepherding theme is to the heart of our God. I, I love that. I love belonging to a shepherd who's jealous and zealous for his flock. And God says to the earthly human shepherd, since you won't do it, I will. The psalmist here cries out, Oh, Lord, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. And again and again in Scripture, we see this is exactly what God does. We've got time. Turn turn to John 10 really, really quickly. Really quickly. John 10. Picking up on this theme. In John 9, a man born blind is healed. And the Pharisees don't like it. Because it wasn't done by one of their approved healers. And they interrogate him. And as they interrogate him, his parents throw him under the bus. You can use the vage, ask him. And eventually, at the end of chapter 9, they cast him out of the synagogue. As far as we can tell, John creates a word. They de-synagogued him. un him. Look at 9.35. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he that is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believed, and he worshipped. Jesus found this lost sheep. But Jesus is going to have something to say to the shepherds who roughly, violently, and poorly handled him. Jesus is provoked because Jesus is God. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see your guilt remains, truly, then into this good shepherd Get get the context. Jesus has found one of his lost sheep. Weak, blind, newly sighted, unclear of his theology. Instead of treating him roughly, Jesus finishes bringing him to faith and feeds him. And now Jesus turns to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheep fold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber, but he who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice, a stranger they will not follow. But they'll flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said to them, All that long aside to say, way back in Israel's history, when Psalm 119 is written, tapping into these themes of God as a shepherd, God seeking his people, God longing for the good of his flock, this psalmist cries out, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. It's good to seek for God. There's some passages in the Bible talking about Mars Hill, I think Paul says, if perhaps they might seek for God. But what really matters is whether the good shepherd is seeking you. And the psalmist here cries, seek me, I've gone astray. For I do not commit your commandments. His reason, I do not forget your commandments. The straying of the psalmist is not a repudiation, but it's the error that dumb sheep can make. Even in our best attempts to serve God, we can discover we've strayed. I know there are times where I've been pleased with myself thinking I've been faithful and a brother comes alongside me and says, so I've been watching and I noticed, and all of a sudden my backpacking turns into seek your servant for I've gone astray. We, we never grow past that. Both are true in this song and I just delight that it's capping this song. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to sing our closing song. Uh, we haven't sung this song, I think in a while, but I trust Uh, Many of you know it well, and if not, you should be able to catch on with it quickly. Um, Please stand as we sing, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us.